Just tell me when. Anytime you want. I got the power. <laughs> oh, I liked it. We just laughed right into the okay. We just blew it. <laughs> We thought we were so clever doing that, and then we laughed all the way through the music, so sorry about that. Uh, welcome to episode two of Doctrine Dudes. I'm Doug Powell. I'm David Filson. And uh, we are here to talk about all things related to the historic Christian faith, and we are working our way through a series on angels and demons. Actually, we're still just doing the angels part right now. And uh, it has taken us forever to get this second one out because we were scheduled to do one, and then we got hit with a blizzard in Nashville, Tennessee. It was like nine inches. It was, it was a crazy. frozen tundra. Yeah. It was an interminable winter. Uh, we could have talked about snow angels, but that's about Pretty. as far as we could get. So, uh, And then we've had all sorts of conspiracies of cir- circumstance. I just whistled like the gopher on Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Looks like you got a rabbit stuck in your hole. So we're off to a good start here. Um, all right. So what we thought we'd do, because now we've had uh, like six weeks worth of Sunday school classes uh, on angels, is we have a bunch of classes, a bunch of questions that have come in. So we're going to work our way through a few of the questions today and just kind of clean up some of the loose ends that we've oh, got. Great so. questions, actually. They're great questions. Yeah. So, uh, and people you... like bring them to me at the end of class, like on scraps of paper, or they'll, you know, send them or text them, email or whatever. Yeah. This would be a way to just get them all yeah. responded to. Cool. Why don't you scoot this way a little bit? You're like hiding behind that microphone there. Well, people appreciate it when they can't see me. <laughs> so you get a little bit more exposure for, for Calvin there. Yes. Okay. Uh, so question one. I'm waiting on my Doug Powell shirt to come in. We're going to be offering those. <laughs> uh, well, if I could just grow a beard like that, then I could <laughs> go like that. Um, are you ready for question one? Question one, bring it. Here it comes. Since angels and demons are slightly corporeal, able to wrestle and fight, how does a fight end? They can't die, but can they do something to the corporeal to kill them? How does an angel prevail over a demon? Yeah, I wonder, Doug, if you could maybe help us understand maybe a little more clearly how we should uh, nuance that idea of slightly corporeal. Slightly corporeal. One of the the things we talked about when we were going through attributes of angels is that they are immaterial. Uh, When I say they are immaterial, or when the Bible talks about it being immaterial, that angels are immaterial, it doesn't mean that they don't have bodies. It means that the bodies they have are not uh, subject to the physical world and limited to the physical world in the way that our earthly bodies are. So they they do have bodies. They are not the same kind of bodies that we have. They do interact with the physical world, uh, but they are not bound by it. So it's similar to, but not exactly like the glorified body that that Christ has mm-hmm. when he appears after the resurrection. So he he can appear in uh, you know, he appears in a, in a locked room. He can eat, um, but he's not subject to those things. He doesn't have to eat. Um, mm-hmm. He doesn't, you know, have to uh, unlock doors or anything like that to walk through them. So there's, there is, uh, they are still tangible when they appear uh, in the physical world. They're not just like these ghostly apparitions or anything like that. They're real things. They really have substance, but it's a different kind of substance that we have. Than yeah. 
It's very helpful. A different kind of substance than we have, and it's a different kind of substance than the physical body of the incarnate Christ. These are not, when an angel appears, it is not an incarnation. That is only the divine logos uh, assuming a human uh, nature. That is uh, unique and exclusive to the incarnation, the incarnate Christ. And yet, uh, they do appear in tangible fashion. And then when, say, Ezekiel sees the angelic creatures, or Isaiah sees the angelic creatures in Isaiah 6, they have bodies. They are spiritual bodies, but they have they have they have bodies that can be seen, and um, so their their appearance tangibly uh, means that they they are not absolutized spirit. Absolute spirit is only God, infinite, uncreated, self-contained, and so by virtue of being creaturely, they are spiritual creatures. Uh, they have spiritual bodies that can appear in tangible fashion. It is not incarnation. But neither is it utterly unseeable or unobservable uh, bodies because of the fact that they are creaturely. And so I think that's the way to help help us understand that they are corporeal in some sense, but not in the sense of, you know, of us, of limited to certain things, or certainly in the sense of the, the, uh, the body of Christ. Yeah, there's a certain sense in that the only way we can try to make sense of some of these things is from a human perspective. Mm -hmm. And that can be helpful in some ways and lead to a little bit of confusion in others. You can speak in it as a kind of an anthropomorphic way. Yeah, yeah. It was Van Til, Cornelius Van Til, who said that we should be open to what he called fearless anthropomorphism. And by that, he meant uh, we we are using human language to define and describe the the infinite. Of course, the old dictum, finitum non capax infinitum, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite, cannot completely fully comprehend the infinite. And so we use anthropomorphic language. Calvin said it this way, God is wont in a measure to lisp in speaking to us, the doctrine of accommodation, human language that is, uh, that is limited in that it is human language, but it's an effort to describe and communicate the reality of, of the infinite. And yet we should embrace that, Van Til would say, fearless anthropomorphism and not let the, the, um, the, anthropomorph- the, the limits of anthropomorphic language confuse us or uh, cause us to not believe. It's a sense in which we live with a mystery. And it was Calvin himself who said, the true theologian is one who, when God has been pleased to close his mouth in revealing something, we put our hand over our own mouth and live with the mystery. Remember that band in the 80s, Daniel Amos? Yeah. Yeah, so they had uh, they had a whole song about that called Darn, Darn Floor Big Bite. Yeah, Which yeah. came from Coco, the sign language speaking gorilla. They showed Coco a video of an earthquake and asked Coco to describe it, and that's what she said. And, and so wow. that became the analogy for our baby talk, yeah. understanding of God's revelation to us. Well, yeah, well, you know, Calvin says, he says, as nurses are commonly want to do with infants uh, in, in lists, as nurses commonly want to do with infants, so God is want in a measure to lisp and speaking to us. And so it's kind of like when I arrived here and Lulu was here, I started talking to her in a different language, right, that I'm using right now. Mm-hmm. It, like when you goo-goo and gaga with a baby, you have that baby talk. So God is is accommodating himself, as Calvin says, to our slight capacity. Yeah. Uh, and he said that because he didn't know about Coco, the sign language speaking mm-hmm. gorilla. So yes. he had to use big words instead of the little ones. Had to use big words, so. exactly. And by the way, Lulu is Doug's daughter. That's right. Uh, we uh, hold her up as an object lesson because Lucy is covered in fur, which makes her 
Lucifer, right? And we're nice. talking about angels and demons. Okay, so uh, next question. Yeah. All right. Question number two, onward. When you talk about differences concerning angels and souls, i.e. angels not with a body, then it is, is it all supposed to be soul? Where is this in the Bible that explains the differences? Between body and soul. Yeah, that's a great question. What I love about that question is the very last part of it. Where is this in the Bible that explains the differences? Uh, you know, Paul in uh, in the book of Acts, chapter seventeen, the the Bereans were were identified as noble precisely because they were checking the teachings of Paul with the scriptures, which is what they had at the time, of course, was the Old Testament. So they were making sure that what Paul said was commensurate with the Bible. Where in the Bible can you say that? Do you have biblical authority for saying what you're saying? And I love the fact that the folks in our Sunday school class, that's what they want. They come because they want Bible and they want uh, biblical authority for the things that we say. And so it's a great question. So the idea that comes from what I said, I think, last Sunday when we talked about Origen's idea that uh, souls and angels are essentially the same thing, and that some of these beings, some of these entities, souls, angels, same same entities, some of them were assigned to bodies. So we have souls, but our soul is the same thing as an angelic being. Now, Origen, of course, was known for a number of, how, how would we say it, variegated perspectives theologically wasn't at all points a um, a safe guide for for theology he was very creative theologically we, we call it today being he was a constructive theologian he was very creatively constructive at times and not always a safe guide but there are differences uh, between souls and bodies um, I mean souls and angels angels spiritual beings are intelligent they are conscious etc we've talked about those things but one of the primary things i honed in on uh, in sunday school class and i think where this question is uh, is arising is the idea that angels are what they are simply considered the soul is a soul and can be distinguished from the body the soul is not the body the body is not the soul in terms of human being and yet the soul is not all it is intended to be dissociated from the body or in a disembodied, just as the body is not all it is intended to be in the disembodied state. So we have a, a couple of scriptures here that we can we can look at that makes this point. So in Ecclesiastes 12, 7, uh, and uh, the body returns to the dust as it was given, and the life's breath returns to God who gave it. Now, the, um, uh, the translation here is the NET. Some translations say, and the spirit returns to God, to God who gave it. The soul returns to God who gave it. So clearly there's a delineation between the corporeal, the body of human, and the human soul. Let's look here. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore we do not despair, but even if our physical body is wearing away, our inner person, our soul, is being renewed day by day. 2 Corinthians 7.1, Therefore since we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that could defile the body, and the Spirit, and thus accomplish holiness out of reverence for God. So you see the Bible is giving us a doctrine of holistic dualism. We as human beings are material and immaterial. We are body and soul. James 2.26, for just as the body without the Spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, James is making a soteriological point about the, the relationship of faith uh, and good works and the discussion of justification, which is a topic for another episode perhaps, we really should do that. But his point here is the delineation between body and soul. Now, in the disembodied state, 
meaning the soul is present with the Lord, the body is dead, a corpse. And so the body is not all that it should be without the soul. The spirit is not dead. It goes to be with the Lord, but is not all it is intended to be apart from the body, which is why in the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, we are not simply raised spiritually or maybe some heightened even spiritual existence. No, the body is resurrected, reconstituted from its state of decay, rejoined with the soul because the the best is yet to come. In other words, the, the goal, the eschatological goal of our salvation is not just that we will forever live in a disembodied spiritual or soul state, but that our bodies will be raised, renewed, conformed to the resurrection body of Christ, rejoined with our souls. And so in that sense, the soul while it exists apart from the body, it's not all it is intended to be or how it is to function apart from the body. Now, the disembodied state, nonetheless, is described by Paul as better by far. Philippians one twenty one and following, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Second Corinthians 5.8, to depart, uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So there is a, a an alive, conscious existence apart from the body. But that disembodied state, though Paul describes it better than our current state in our fallenness and suffering with remaining and dwelling sin and death and sorrow, um, it is better to be with the Lord, but the best is yet to come. You know, as we read in First uh, Corinthians 2, eyes not seen, First Corinthians 2, 9, eyes not seen, ears not heard, nor is it entered the imagination, the hearts of man, the things the Lord has in store for those who love him. Now, the pastoral, um, the pastoral beauty of this question is beyond just the technical difference between, um, you know, body and soul, or can we show that biblically, which we have, but it is the the hope that we have in the resurrection. And the greatest privilege I have as a, as a pastor is to be with families in times of bereavement, at, at deathbeds, at gravesides, and to be able to let them know that Christian burial is not the disposal of a body. It's not the disposal of anything. We dispose of stuff we don't need. We dispose of stuff we don't like. Christian burial is a deposit of something precious for safekeeping. It's a resurrection deposit because Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, is going to make a resurrection withdrawal, which means that that burial ground is only temporary. We're actually standing in a cemetery on resurrection ground. And the Christian's procession to the cemetery at a funeral, a Christian funeral, is not an acquiescence to death. It's a faith-filled defiance of death. It's a final act of worship on behalf of this individual, the worship of the Lord Jesus, who is going to come, and as he did with Lazarus in John 11, call that body forward to be rejoined with a soul for life forever in a physical new heavens and new earth. You know, it was Cornelius Van Til who said, the gift is in order the task far as uh, as far as the curse is found, so far his grace is given. Jesus walks, he says, a cosmic road. We are going to receive healed bodies uh, for our healed souls to live in a healed environment. And this, of course, is what Paul's getting at in Romans 8 when he says all creation is groaning under the labor of pains of childbirth, longing for our adoption as sons, which he defines it as the resurrection of our bodies. In other words, we are we are adopted now already, but not yet have we experienced the final manifestation of our adoption, the resurrection of our bodies, at which point body and soul will be rejoined for life together forever in the new heaven and new earth, which is why I was saying earlier, the soul exists apart from the body. The body exists apart from the soul. It's dead. It's decaying. But that is not the ideal or what God intended for us as humans, as psychosomatic holes, body and soul, 
whereas angels exist as they are fully as he intended, and that's that. We are intended and created to live forever, body and soul joined, which is why I think we can say we are truly human now. We're not fully human yet because full humanity, our experience of full humanity is going to be our conformity to the resurrected body of Christ, our soul and bodies rejoined. Until then, our own Westminster Confession of Faith says that the bodies of believers in the grave are still united to Christ. Uh, One whole Southern Presbyterian theologian James Henley Thornwell said it this way beautifully, the Holy Spirit guards the dust of believers until the great day of resurrection when all this will take place. So hopefully that helps get at that question. One of the things that might help uh, also is talking a little bit about um, what uh, what philosophers call substance dualism, mm-hmm. which is uh, the idea that we are we are made of both uh, our bodies and our souls, but there's the ways that that we have real ways to distinguish them to show that they are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, a substance is something that has properties. Mm-hmm. Uh, properties would be like a body has weight, it has volume, it has color, uh, but these things... Extended uh, in space and time. Extended mm-hmm. in space and time. And uh, the the so the substance has these things, but a physical substance only has physical properties associated with it. And an immaterial substance like the soul has only, only immaterial properties associated mm-hmm. with it. So uh, like the property of thought, your thought doesn't have uh, weight to it. Uh, it doesn't have a location to it. Okay, there's there's these certain physical properties that don't apply to thought. Which is a real problem for materialist atheists That's when right. it comes to making sense of in a fully physicalist materialist construct. What is thought? That's right, and it's not uh, material. And uh, emotions that would be another thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, and and the properties that a substance has can change over the time over time even though the substance doesn't change so uh, it's the substance that is the um, the owner of the properties and it can change the properties but it doesn't work the other way around and because uh, 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 the body is is physical it does not have non-physical properties. It doesn't have immaterial properties. So the things that are true about you that are not physical apply to the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and this actually has uh, ethical ramifications too, because let's say you put uh, somebody in, in prison for life, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, their, uh, the cells of their body, if they're an adult male, are going to self-replicate and change over the course of like seven years seven or years, so. Yeah. Uh, so if somebody's been in jail more than seven years, then the actual body you put in jail is not the same body who was convicted of the crime and sentenced to, uh, to, to prison. So would it be ethical to keep them? Why is it ethical to keep them in prison for more than seven years? There has to be some continuity that makes them that same person. And that is that the, they are an ensouled uh, uh, embodied soul. It's the soul that gives him that continuity over time. That soul is who deliberated on whether to commit the crime or not and then chose to do it, and that's what makes them morally culpable. So you're imprisoning the body, but it's the soul that gives it continuity mm-hmm. that that creates the, the, uh, the ethical grounds for it. That's such an excellent um, observation, and it's just one more example of how a materialist anthropology is fraught with all kinds of epistemic, metaphysical, and ethical conundrums. You know, uh, for instance, if if all we are are accidental 
bags of biology, as you know, Sam Harris, biochemical puppets, if all we are are just accidental bags of biology, then from an ethical standpoint, there's really no difference between murdering somebody and mowing the grass. You're just cutting down cellular entity. Mm -hmm. Now, some of that cellular entity is more highly evolved at the cellular level, but at the end of the day, you're just cutting down cellular entity. Plus, you got to say the word fraught. How often does that happen? Fraught. Fraught. I that know. Was good. I know. Let's uh, see if I can work fraught into every one of these episodes moving forward. Okay, that's our that's our new goal. Our <laughs> uh, okay. Question number three. It's a big one. Um, the main question was about the metaphysical reality of angels and their interaction with the physical world. So, for example, when the angels appeared to Lot and the men of Sodom, or Gomorrah, lusted after them, could these men have touched these angels? Long story short, do angels physically manifest in the material world as we know it? Secondly, if they aren't material, can animals or other sentient non-metaphysical beings see them? And uh, we, we just touched on a lot of the answer to this <laughs> yeah. uh, a minute ago. Um, uh, the back half of that, the can animals see them? The uh, the answer to that is if God wants them to. Okay, angels aren't just out there freelancing doing whatever they want. They are they are spiritual beings who are messengers from God. When they are not out on these messenger errands, they are at the throne worshiping God. So uh, when they are sent out. They have these messages they're given, but it's more than just the message. They are given the ability to uh, manifest in whatever way they are told to. Uh, they uh, that that mean, it could be in a dream. It could be only to some people who mm -hmm. are standing there in a group. Uh, there are any number of ways they could appear, and if God so chose for uh, an angel to be uh, uh, detected by an animal, then. That's what it would take is for God's will to do that. They don't, animals don't have any sort of inherent ability to see angels that humans don't. Uh, but when angels do appear, such as at, um, at Sodom, they are tactile. They could be touched, mm -hmm. okay, but they are not the same sort of physical human uh, bodies as, as we have, again, as we've, as we've talked about earlier. Yeah, great. You don't want to do anything else? No, That's that, it? that just, I'm just taking notes, man. You, you don't even want to say fraught? I am, <laughs> I am fraught with, um, how, how would I say this? I am fraught with um, your ability to so succinctly and adequately and accurately answer <laughs> such a metaphysically complex question. So I'm, I'm just sitting here in my fraughtness right now. We need a sound bite, bite that says fraught. On we need here a fraught. Somewhere. We do. So. Uh, okay. Did, we have another big one here. Is a material manifestation of the metaphysical self in humans? Uh, is a material manifestation of the medical self, metaphysical self in humans. Some philosophers, I think Descartes, theorized that the connection between the metaphysical self and the material self was this certain place in the brain. This might be helpful to your listeners to begin to view themselves as both material and metaphysical. So here again, we've, we've touched on this in the last couple questions. I find most people, Christian and non-Christian, including myself, conflate these terms by initially referring to the physical for the material self, but then they contradict themselves by referring to their soul as physical or real in some capacity. And so again, 
uh, we were talking about um, uh, substance dualism to uh, to answer that. Yeah, so uh, even if I didn't know this question had come to us from Emma Fenton, I could have just read the question and told you that's who it was from, the fact that she mentions Descartes. Uh, Rene Descartes was a philosopher, French Roman Catholic philosopher, mathematician, genius in the true sense of the word, lived from uh, 1596 to 1650. Didn't he invent the barometer? I think he invented the barometer. So, You're exactly, you. yes. There you Boom. go. There you go. Um, so he is fraught with abilities and capacities and talents. Yeah. So um, it was Rene Descartes, of course, from whom the famous dictum cogito ergo sum. We get our our idea of rationalism, philosophical the system of philosophical rationalism from Descartes, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. So our starting point for knowing is autonomous human reason. However. As Greg Bonson would have us know, belief in God is the necessary precondition for using man's reason at all. And perhaps that's a discussion for another uh, another episode, and I think we probably should do that. But just know that um, Descartes was a believer. However, one of the downsides of his thought is that it moved us into a place of the autonomy of human reason as being um, a, a being a principia. A starting point epistemologically for how we know what we know is autonomous human reason. Now, Descartes, and I think the way that it applies to Emma's good question here, uh, and it touches back upon substance dualism or what is known as Cartesian dualism, is that he was trying to make sense of this substance dualism, this body-mind uh, you know, conundrum that philosophers have long uh, tried to address. And he's trying to make sense of how can we look at a physical thing with our eyes and our eyes transmit uh, those um, those objects, you know, d through our nerves and signals to the brain. He had this idea that the uh, pineal gland in the brain was like a sort of staging area, or what uh, atheist philosopher Daniel Dennett calls the Cartesian theater. And it's in the Cartesian theater that all of these signals come from the physical world into this sort of holding, you know, place, this almost like a warehouse, kind of a, you might think of it as a um, kind of an ideological warehouse, but it's physical. It's, it's a gland in the brain, and it's there that the immaterial mind comes in and maybe collects those images and, and um, perceptions, assesses and um, analyzes them. And so that's how he's trying to get at the mind-body dualism. Now, She's right. It's Descartes who said that it exists physically uh, in the brain. Now, if we can go back to her question here and unpack it just for a second, um, her concern here is that we view ourselves as both material and, as she's saying, metaphysical. So I think when we get at metaphysical, that's getting the question of being. The metaphysics of the human being is that we are material and immaterial. We are physical and we are spiritual. Uh, so our metaphysical self is, is both, right? You know, who we are in our being is both physical and, and non-physical. Um, and she's saying here, I find most people, Christian, non-Christian, including myself, conflate these terms by initially referring to the physical for the material self. And then they contradict themselves by referring to their soul as a physical, as a physical or, and, or real in some capacity. And I think what she's getting at there, and I hope I'm going to address this correctly, is that we need to realize that though, as you were saying earlier so eloquently, there are properties that are unique to the physical parts of us, extension in space and time, for instance, 
and there are properties that are unique to the soul or the non-material part of us. And however, because we are psychosomatic, we do not operate as though, well, the physical is operating in this room over here and my soul is operating in this room over here. There is a congruence that exists between body and soul. So I can truly say with my physical lips, I can truly say I was thinking such and such. And yet it is not my vocal cords that were doing the thinking or my lips that were doing the thinking. And yet the I involved involves both my soul and that part of me that is speaking that. Or if I said, I saw a sunset, it is the I, the, not, not the eyeball, but it is the self that involves both the eyeball and the soul perceiving that sunset, if that makes sense. And so as a psychosomatic whole, there is a congruence that exists between the physical and the non-physical such that we can speak of the two as the same. In other words, there is, and I don't want this to be confusing, but we speak of a communicatio idiomatum between the divine and human in Christ. There is sort of a communication of attributes in that when when I say, um, I love my wife. Well, I love my wife. Uh, that is, love is a non-physical entity. It's not material. It's like thought is not material. And yet the I that is loving my wife is David Filson, body and soul. And so I think that's a proper way to kind of understand the the metaphysical, uh, a proper metaphysical understanding of the human person. Anything you would add to that? Uh, fraught. I just want to say fraught because I haven't said it yet. Yeah, we. Yeah, I was, <laughs> was wondering when it was going to happen. <laughs> There's no way I can add yeah. to that. Yeah. All right. We we have time for one more question. All right. All right. What is it? Um, okay, I'm hoping you might expand on your answer to my question about whether the angels are all around us all the time, but we can't see them, or are they mostly up in heaven around God's throne unless they're being sent out on mission? Uh, so, number one, does that mean that heaven is not an actual place? Isn't it above space? The Bible tells us Jesus descended to earth and then ascended back to heaven after his resurrection. Also, he's in bodily form, so where is he now, if not up in heaven? And number two, God says in Revelation that he will make a new heaven. What does that mean? Well, um, the, uh, the, the word that we use for heaven not only just means like the, the, the sky or the starry expanse, it means being beyond that. And not just beyond that physically, but transcending creation altogether. Uh, and so there's several different ways in which it can be used, but really essentially what it means is there is an unseen element to creation, and that is the abode of the angels. That is the abode of God. That's what we're talking about when we say heaven. There isn't necessarily an upness or downness to it. Uh, there is simply a beyond us to it. So it is all around us, and it is unseen. We think of it in terms of uh, upward language in order to mean that it, it's supra, it's beyond this language, but it is not geographically up. So in, in Acts, when Jesus ascends to heaven, he does actually, he is described as moving up, but, um, but he doesn't necessarily have to move up in order to get to heaven. He happens to be doing both in that case. Um, so that's, that's what we mean when there is this unseen world 
that uh, that is what's referred to as as the hev- heavenly realm, and that it doesn't nece- it is a very real place. It is the abode of God. The angels. Uh, uh, it is the abode of angels because they're surrounding the throne of God, but it is uh, it is also all around us, not necessarily just up. Yeah, and I think that metaphysic that you've just so helpfully explained helps us understand how Jesus, in His glorified body, His resurrected glorified body, could simply appear to the disciples in a locked room without having to knock on the door and being allowed in. I think that uh, that the 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 metaphysical nature of heaven, uh, the the upness or the the up language or the idea that it's up there. You've really helped us understand that that we're talking about it transcends the spatial limitations of this earth, but it is not that it's like you know up and maybe two planets past Jupiter, and there you'll find this place mm-hmm. called heaven, like it has that kind of address. And I think the the everywhereness is, as you described it, is maybe helpful in understanding what I think is one of the most like marvelous in terms of truly making you marvel. Jesus simply appears. Uh, among the disciples, there is some, there is some mysterious connection between the here and now of heaven that we simply, that we simply don't, we don't see. You know, Paul described it as being taken up into the third heaven, but by that he didn't mean that he necessarily went physically up the way we would think, like when you go up in an airplane at thirty thousand feet, but that he transcended into the third heaven. The, the next part of that question, you know, what is the new earth? What is that uh, about? And kind of touches upon what I was saying earlier with the resurrection of the body. But in the book of Revelation, uh, Jesus promises he's going to make all things new. And we have the image there of the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth. And so we speak of the new heavens and new earth because the scope of Christ's redemption is a, is a cosmic scope. It's not just the salvation of individual souls but the renewal of heaven and earth. And ultimately, what heaven is going to be is not simply us existing in this sort of ephemeral, disembodied spiritual state, but the true spiritual state, what is truly spiritual about it, is not just that it's disembodied, but that it is the fullness, the the teleological, eschatological fullness of completion of heaven and earth uh, being transformed, made new, a very physical existence. And that is the hope that is held out for us. Heavenly hope is ultimately a physical hope, which is why I was saying what I was saying about the resurrection of the body earlier. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, okay, so that's all the questions we have uh, yeah. for this time. Some but great questions. There are some great questions. Uh, but we have uh, we have one last question, actually, and it's uh, this week's trivia question. Uh-oh. All right, you ready, David? I don't know. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> Wait on me. You're so ready. Uh, who is this man? Oh my goodness gracious. Who, who is this? And why are we talking about him? Was this the band Angel? <gasps> that was the band Angel. It's the band Angel. It's the band. There they are. It's Angel. Oh, look, at, look at that luscious, luxurious flow. <laughs> and, and the Ambigram logo, which you can turn upside down and it still says Angel. That is amazing. Yeah. And I love the title of the record. Sinful. Sinful. Yeah. Isn't that great? I'm wondering if maybe for our next episode, would you be willing to wear 
one of those, like, the, see the guy on the end who has the kind of highlights, the blonde highlights? Greg Jafria. Remember Greg Jafria. the band Jafria? Yes, that's, yes, that's where he came, for, came from. So I think you need <laughs> one of those that just kind of cut that. We all, we all want to see Doug in that. It, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I have no words for that. Uh, but here, here's some good trivia. Okay, yeah. so the the guitar player is uh, his name was Punky Meadows. Punky Meadows, great guitar player. Yeah, he turned down the uh, he was he turned down the ability the, the the invitation to be in the New York Dolls. Wow, in the early seventies, and then when Joe Perry left Aerosmith in 1980, he turned down the replacement gig in Aerosmith. And then when Kiss, uh, when Ace Fraley left Kiss, he was offered the job in Kiss. No kidding. He turned all of them down to stay an angel. Wow. How about that? Because angels are what they are. In a, in a simply stated, they don't need to be anything else. He is exactly what he needed to be as an angel. This kind of ties into our question earlier. There you go. And, uh, you know, just as a uh, a special bonus, so uh, here's here's how geeky an angel fan I am. They're back together. They are out on the road this spring. They're playing a couple gigs with Ace Fraley. Wow. Uh, And uh, Punky Meadows himself gave us permission to do the outro music today. He really did. So here comes Punky. If you've never heard Angel... Then here it comes. Get ready. You're going to go straight to Spotify after you hear these luscious licks. <laughs> Were you an Angel fan? I really wasn't much of an Angel fan, but now I am after I've seen them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, he's shredding that strap. Oh, yeah. That is just... We love Angel. Those are some sweet licks. See? How do you not? Straight to Spotify. Straight to Spotify. All right, we'll see you guys next time on Doctrine Dudes. <laughs>